0: Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, most of you know it by heart. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul began the book of Ephesians with a song of praise in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And then he continued with this powerful prayer in verses 17 through 22. And then he launches into preaching the gospel in chapter 2. You'll remember that Paul began his sermon with this vivid description of the human condition in verses 1 through 3 that the sinner is dead in trespass and sin, we found ourselves deluded, disobedient, defiled, doomed. Paul then continues with a historical analysis of what God did in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, an explanation of why God did it in chapter 7. We were rescued from death in verses 1 through 3, rescued by love in verses Verse 4, rescued for life in verse 5, rescued for a reason in verses 6 and 7. And you'll remember the last time we were together, I said that this seven verses is a singular sentence as Paul takes us from the pit all the way to the pinnacle. The reason, you'll recall, was so that God could display his grace and his mercy in the ages to come. We are like spiritual hikers, and we are going to come to this highest peak. Probably the three most important verses in all of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And this verse... In, ver- in verses one through seven, we make our way to the top. We stand on the top of the mountain, and Paul declares, For by grace you've been saved through faith. He gives us permission to pause for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever hiked a great big mountain, but it takes a lot of time and effort. And once you get up there, you want to take in the view. In verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10, Paul is going to invite you to look north and to look west and to look south and to look east so that you can see as far as you will allow the panorama to take you. Like a theological compass, we are going to make a complete turn. We see grace and faith the absence of any man-made or human effort, but then we get this clear vision that we were made for Christ. Other rarefied pinnacles in the scripture tell us where we came from and where we're going. There's a reason why this passage might be one of the most quoted passages in all of the Bible. This single scripture proves false and untrue every man-made religion, every works-based system of righteousness, every worldview that entertains the notion that human beings can be saved apart from grace, apart from faith, apart from the gospel, apart from Christ. In a single sentence, Paul cuts down every religion that teaches a works-based righteousness. That you can have a right relationship with God based on what you could possibly do. And since this single scripture proves false and untrue, every religion, every, fa- every philosophy that teaches humanity isn't really lost. That sin isn't really a problem. That you can merit or earn salvation that you're not really damned and you're not really doomed, and that you never ever have to ask the question, how can I be saved? Every man-made cult, whether Christian or non-Christian, unite in a single chorus to deny this text. However else you're saved, it can't be that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. and Christ alone, it can't be that simple. There has to be some sort of human effort involved. There's something in our broken and bent condition that wants to contribute to our salvation. And I believe this is why so many false religions and false philosophies and false cults Grow and proliferate. So Paul says when we come to the top, for by grace you've been saved. Do you remember the first time anyone ever said to you, hey, can I ask you a question? Are you saved? I remember when I got asked that question. I thought, what are you, nuts? What are you talking about? Saved from what? What? Prior to my conversion to Christ I had no idea what Christians were talking about when they talked about being saved. Hey, are you saved? From what? Well, the right answer, of course, is from God's wrath and God's judgment. Saved from what? You mean my sin is a real problem and I might have to deal with that very real problem, Yes, there's a place called hell, and people are quite content to talk about spiritual matters. They'll talk about anything. They'll talk about the Broncos. They'll talk about anything other than this subject of eternal life and eternal punishment. Paul has already brought up the painful subject. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 1 through 3, when he said, You, he's made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin." We walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath. This is why Jesus began his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. When he said the time is up. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. This is the opening sentence of our Savior. Jesus called on people to repent of their sin. One of the hardest things to admit is that I was once a part of Satan's great rebellion. So when a person came up to me and said, Are you saved? It never even once occurred to me to say, Yeah, I'm a part of Satan's rebellion. In rebellion and disobedience, I'm walking away from anything and everything that smacks of Christians or Christianity. The Bible says that hell is a place prepared for Satan and his his angels. In a future time of judgment, Jesus condemns those who side with Satan and his rebellion. In Matthew 25, 41, it says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Most of what we know about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. He describes it as a place of everlasting and unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12 and Mark 9.43. It's presented as a place of memory and remorse, Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. It's a place of thirst and misery and pain in Revelation chapter 14 verse 10. It's a place of Anger and frustration and separation in Matthew 24, 51 and Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. It's a place that's described in the Bible as a place of undiluted, that means not mixed with any grace, with any mercy. It's undiluted wrath in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. And some people wonder. If Jesus is using symbolic language or, or metaphorical language when he speaks of, of gnashing of teeth and, and gnawing at your tongue and, and absolute darkness. Let's just, for purposes of discussion, entertain the thought. That maybe it is metaphorical language and maybe it is symbolic language. But it's been my experience that if it's metaphor and it's simple, symbolic, it's, it's, it, it's because it can't begin to describe this horrible and terrible place of horror and torment. Some people reject the notion of hell altogether. As others trivialize it. Some suggest it's right here and right now. And when you ask your family and friends about it, they'll pop open another beer and just say, I can't wait to meet my friends and party with them down there. Our real battle, they'll say, is with ignorance. Our real problem is we don't have the right information. The Gnostic Gospels popularize the notion that we are in fact divine beings and that we're just simply unaware of our own divinity. The false teacher says really our problem is ignorance or illusion, but Paul doesn't buy it, not even for a moment. Paul says that the ultimate calamity, the ultimate terrifying thing is God's wrath and God's judgment against sin and he spells it out in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 when he writes of, of the Thessalonians conversion from idolatry to the true and living God he says you Thessalonians you were pagans and and you used to walk around and do all kinds of strange things and worship all kinds of strange gods and then in verse 10 he says but you came and to wait for it, his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, writing of their conversion to the true and living God, you converted to the true and living God, and you waited and are waiting for, for Jesus to come from heaven that this Jesus he raised from the dead, and it's this same Jesus who's going to deliver us from the wrath to come. We're saved. We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved by grace. And the word grace, by the way, translates the Greek word charis. In the ancient world, this word meant so much depending on the context. Abbott Smith's manual of the Greek lexicon gives an excellent summary. It says that this word charis means, number one, objectively, that which causes a favorable regard, grace. It's the thing that instills immediately the perception of favor. Subjectively, number two, On the part of the giver, grace is graciousness, kindness, goodwill, favor. It says, especially in the New Testament, of the divine favor, grace with emphasis on its freeness and universality. On the part of the receiver, a sense of favor received. It is thanks. It is gratitude. People have used all kinds of words to try and describe it. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's favor. Unmerited favor. It is that, but it's way more than that. Kramer writes, quote, charis has been distinctly appropriated in the New Testament to designate the relation and conduct of God towards sinful man as it's revealed in and through Christ. Let me give you another picture. In the ancient world, they would use this word, charis, grace. This is the kind of favor that parents gave to their children. This is the preferential treatment that family gave to family and tribes gave to tribe. But in the ancient world, it was not something that you would ever give to a complete stranger for no reason. Paul is going to appropriate it and use it in the sense that there is a great God in Christ who in spontaneous favor is willing to save people who don't deserve it. So it's more than the unmerited favor that results in pardon and forgiveness. It's more than mere acceptance as children. In the ancient world, it was the kind of grace that was given that made you gracious, that flooded your heart with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving, that such generosity was lavished upon you. It's the kind of grace that makes you gracious. Kremer writes: quote, remember when Jesus spoke, and they marveled at his gracious words that came from his mouth, same word. It's the kind of favor that makes you want to do favors. For everyone else. In the book of Galatians, Paul laments, I marvel that you're so turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Paul says that this grace comes from Jesus. Schofield's note says, The test of the gospel is grace. If the message excludes grace or mingles law with grace as as a means either of justification or sanctification, or denies the fact or the guilt of sin, which alone gives grace its occasion and opportunity, it's a different gospel. And the preacher is under the curse of God, unquote. This is why it's so important that you understand both the fact and the guilt of sin. Because if you don't understand the fact and the guilt of sin, you can't understand the magnificence of the grace that's been given to you. You're saved by grace. In a wonderful commentary in the book of Romans, William Newell has a section entitled, quote, A Few Words About Grace. He writes, number one, Grace is God acting freely according to his own nature as love with no promises or obligations to fulfill and acting righteously in view of the cross. This is God's favor according to Newell. Acting freely according to his own nature in love Newell writes, number two, grace, therefore, is uncaused in the recipient. Its cause lies wholly in the giver as God. In other words, there's nothing you could say or do to prompt this grace. It isn't that you start looking pitiful or complaining horribly or that there's something that happens. You're having a bad hair day or whatever it is. No matter how good you are or bad you are, there's nothing that prompts this. Number three, Newell writes, grace is sovereign. Not having any debts to pay or fulfilled conditions on man's part to wait for, it can act toward whom and however it pleases. It can and does often place the worst deserver in the highest favor. It would be us saying, you don't deserve to be saved. Exactly. Out of all of the evil and horrible people I know, you're the worst. I, right. Yes. Yes. Newell writes, to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy is the secret to receive grace. And then he writes these condemning words. To hope to be better is to fail to see yourself in Christ. If I could only be better, if I, was just, if I could just be a, a better person, if I could just be better... Once I get to be good enough, and then I can become a Christian. And then here's what Newell writes. To be disappointed in myself is to believe in myself. Do you understand what he's saying? I'm so disappointed in what I've done. I know, that's because you still believe in yourself. It's because... For whatever reason, you're holding out hope that somehow, some way, there's something good inside of you that God will identify with and go, you know, maybe the best thing I ever did was save you. But that's exactly the opposite of grace. He says you're saved by grace, and then you're saved through faith. Look at the end of the verse. <laughs> For by grace you've been saved, look what it says, through faith. Salvation is always by grace. And note, it's always preceded by faith. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We use this word faith in a number of different ways. We, we will sometimes say, hey, what faith are you? Thinking about Catholicism or Protestantism or agnosticism or some faith or no faith or any faith at all. But when the Bible is using the term here, faith, it's not talking about a religious preference. It isn't even about a religious identification. Here in the Bible, faith has at least two different elements. It's the belief in what is true. And then it's the confidence to trust Jesus. The word Is pistis. It means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. It isn't just simply an intellectual assent, it's that which you offer and you place your full confidence in and your total trust. In the 1900s, there was a guy named Jean Francois Gravelet. He was better known as the Amazing Blondin. And I've used this illustration in the past. He was known for his death-defying high-wire routines. He was traveling through Europe and America. And he would perform on a high wire that was 170 feet high. He once balanced a stove on this wire and he fried an egg on the high wire. And so he would basically tell people that he would carry a man across a rope suspended on his back in Niagara Falls and he would he would once he'd completed the demonstration he would say to the crowd do you believe that i can do it and they would scream yes yes and then he would point to a person and he would say will you let me carry you across the rope and they would say no You laugh, you would say no too. I would. The rope could break. I know what would happen if I got on that guy's back. I would panic. It would be like a person drowning, and the guy would go, Please stop. Look, I can do this. You're going to kill us both. And I go, That's why I knew it was a bad idea to try it in the first place. But see, that's the difference. With Jesus, you don't have to worry. He leaves nothing to chance. It isn't like you trust Jesus and you go, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus. I just really hope that what the Bible says about him is true. But that's the confidence and the trust. It's the realization that you open up your Bible. It's that day, you remember that day. It's the day you, you thought to yourself, what if everything that the Bible says about Jesus is true? What if it's true that he loves me? What if it's true that he can save me? What if it's true that he came back to life? What if it's true that he can wash me and cleanse me? What if it's true that the promises that are made in the, in the, in the Bible are true and you trust Him." And look what Paul writes, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. The contrast is stark. Not yourself. Paul will have nothing to do with the person who offers himself or herself in pledge as part of the terms of salvation. Paul says, no, it's the gift of God. What's he talking about? What is the gift of God here? Is the grace a gift? Is the faith a gift? Is the salvation a gift? He may mean all of those things. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. But I think that he's talking about salvation. And everything that entails. Each person, according to the Bible is given a measure of faith in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Since it's a gift, it has to be received. And it has to be received with gratitude. But people, people are reluctant to receive something so free, so willingly given, so available to everyone, they go, this can't possibly be true. But it is true. It is true. The contrast is stark. You can't save yourself. And then he says, saved not by works. Look what it says in, in verse 9 not of works, lest anyone should boast. Some have suggested, well, isn't belief a work? I mean, you said you have to believe the gospel, right? You have to believe that it's true. Isn't that a work? Paul begs to differ. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we read, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, is contrasting People work with belief. Belief isn't a work. Paul says that wages have nothing to do with grace. People who work receive wages. Paul then points out that Abraham didn't experience justification by faith plus circumcision in chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. Or by keeping the law in verses 13 through 17. But rather by faith alone in verses 18 through 25. Many people believe that God in heaven keeps some sort of cosmic scale. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then God has to accept you. Many years ago, in Life, there was a Life magazine cover, and it featured the title, The Power of Prayer. How Americans talk to God. One person, a prostitute in a Nevada brothel, is shown praying on her brass bed. She says, quote, a lot of people think working girls don't have any morals, any religion, but I do. I don't steal. I don't lie. The way I look at it, I'm not sinning. He's not going to judge me. I don't think God judges anybody, unquote. You know, it's you're all looking astonished, but th- these are the same exact words that some of you muttered sometime in the past or people that you know have muttered. God, God doesn't care. God won't judge me. It doesn't really matter. It is true that Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the son, unquote. The next time a person says to you, I don't think God will judge me, you could say, well, technically you're right. The father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the son. On what basis will the son judge you? In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, we're given a picture of that judgment. It says, quote, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, but with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And then you can tell them the bad news. Did God judge Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God judge the world and destroy it in a flood in Genesis 6? Did God judge the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God judge the Egyptians? Did God judge the Assyrians? Did God judge the Philistines who stood against his people, Israel? Oh, wait a minute. Did God even judge Israel? Does Jesus judge the church in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? And so here's this God who, with all of your heart, you hope won't judge, but has a track record of judging in the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, at the end of the Bible. Paul's point, you cannot, you will not, you will never be able to earn your salvation. The Jehovah's Witnesses think that you can earn your salvation by doing good works, by going door to door. For them, salvation for heaven is limited to 144,000. But they, they believe that all the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses have some sort of, chance at some sort of life here on a reconstituted planet in their way of thinking heaven is already full. The Mormons believe you're resurrected by grace and saved. That is, when they use the term saved, they mean exalted to godhood by doing good works, by In being faithful to the church leaders by by participating in Mormon baptism and tithing and ordination and marriage and, and secret temple rituals. There's no eternal life without Mormon membership. The unification church teaches that you have to obey and accept the true parents. That's Reverend Moon and his wife. There's a modern Korean cult that believes much the same. But there is this father God and mother God. The unification church believed that you can eliminate sin from your life, which results in perfection. Those married by Moon and his wife drink a special holy wine containing 21 ingredients, including the true parent's blood. According to Christian scientists, you're already saved because you were never lost to begin with. Sin, evil, sickness, death, none of it is real. I remember talking to a woman who was involved with Christian science, and she said that that sin wasn't real and death wasn't real. None of it was real. She happened to be a mature woman, and I pointed to a mirror and I said, look in the mirror. I go, do you look different than you did when you were 18 years old? And she started to cry. You shouldn't, that's, I don't recommend it as a witnessing tool to make them cry. That's not effective. But when she looked into the mirror, all of reality seemed to argue against her position that this world really is real. In the Unity Church, you have to recognize that each person is as much a son of God as Jesus. There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as the devil. There's no sin. There's no poverty. There's no old age. A person is reincarnated until he learns these truths and becomes perfect or complete. In Scientology, there's no such thing as sin. There's no need to repent. Salvation is freedom from reincarnation like Hinduism. In Scientology, you work with an auditor to adjust what they call your engrams or hang-ups to achieve a state of clear, and then you progress to this bridge of total freedom. In their view, hell is a myth. In Wicca or witchcraft, human beings are neither sinful or in need of saving, It's important for Wiccans to honor and work for the preservation of nature, which they equate with the goddess. And so for them, you work with the goddess in new age or metaphysical mindsets. The person works off bad karma and exercises good works in order to generate good karma. You can tap into the supernatural through meditation, self-awareness, and spirit guides. I used to believe this. This is what I believed. I believed that you could alter your state of consciousness and you could tap into an invisible and paranormal world where you could access understanding, you could submerge yourself in the divine cosmic consciousness. People in the metaphysical mind movement use the term reborn. As a euphemism of self awareness. What they mean by that is you begin to understand that you are divine. The one thing, the one thing that can't possibly be true, the one thing that can't possibly be true is what the Bible says about the human condition that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. In Hinduism, salvation is release from the endless cycles of reincarnation. But in biblical Christianity, it says it's appointed once for a person to die, and then the judgment. You see, in biblical Christianity, it's not reincarnation that brings you to a sense of self awareness, but rather it is the resurrection from the dead. And you stand before God. In Roman Catholicism, Christ died as a substitute sacrifice for sin. And then God, by his grace, infuses a supernatural gift of faith in Christ to those who are baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, which is then sustained by doing good works of love, receiving penance, experiencing the Eucharist, participating in the sacraments. The Judaizers, those were the people living in the time when Paul was writing this book. These were people who said that Christians had to believe in Jesus, accept Jesus, and then embrace the Jewish laws of circumcision and keeping the law and observing the festivals in order to secure salvation. So what's at stake? What is Paul trying to communicate? If I can make this as simple as I possibly can, you will always, always trust one of two things. Yourself or Christ. You will trust yourself. Or you'll trust Christ. And so Paul says you're saved for good works. Look what it says in verse 10. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember there's a group of people who believe that you have to be good in order to be saved. The Bible teaches because you're saved you'll want to do good. Do you understand the difference? You're not saved by being good or doing good things or doing good works. You're saved in order to do good works. When it says in verse 10, for we are as workmanship, that word workmanship translates a Greek word poema. You probably already recognize that word. From its English cognate, poem, it means In the ancient world, in in the Greek language, it meant that which is crafted or that which is made. In the ancient world, it was the product of an artist. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it's translated very literally, the things that are made, same word. The old Scottish word for poet means word maker. In the Greek language, the word could describe anything made. F.F. Bruce translates this, for we are his work of art, his masterpiece. According to Paul, we are made by God, and then we are made new by Christ. So someone might argue, well, didn't God make everybody? Yeah. The creator God created everyone. But for everyone who's made new in Christ Jesus, who are saved by grace through faith, you become something that was never, that never existed before. No wonder Paul would later write in Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 that we are new creations in Christ. The word new creation in in Corinthians is the word that we get our word species from. It, It means something brand new that's never been seen before. We're created for a purpose. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your heart and establish you in every good word and work. God did this in advance for where is workmanship created in Christ which God prepared beforehand. That's what it means. God did this in advance. Each one of us, if I were to put it bluntly, are eternally prepared. Let me put it differently. Each and every one of you have an eternally prepared job description. Each and every one of us has an eternally prepared job description, which includes our task, which includes our ability, which includes our place of service. Let me put it another way. We're not simply like paintings or statues. We're more like a song that was meant to be sung, that was designed for action, In other words, you're not something or someone who is meant to be in a closet or sit on a shelf or be collected over time for for the future. You were destined for action to do good things. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way in his book, Becoming a People of Grace. He writes, quote, From his sovereign seat, God foresaw us Resting in his protection and boldly taking a stand against evil compassionately extending a hand to the needy, lovingly sharing the gospel every time he gives us a chance. His plan for our lives extend beyond salvation, to sanctification, beyond standing in grace, to walking in good deeds. The work God has in mind for us may be sometimes bigger than we can handle. His word issues some mighty tall orders. How can we live up to them? Unquote. You were created by God in Christ. You have an eternal job description welling up inside of you. Uniquely called and gifted for the assignment that only you can accomplish. James writes that faith without works is dead. A living faith will produce a faith worth living. R.C. Sproul writes, quote, Though our good works do not merit salvation, they are the basis upon which God promises to distribute rewards in heaven. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is by faith alone. Our reward in the kingdom will be according to our good works, which, as Augustine noted, A case of God's gracious crowning of his own gifts, unquote. In other words, this was Augustine's way of saying, you're going to get everything that God designed you to get because he designed you to get what he designed you to get. I know that's all very confusing for some of you. Let me put it another way. Everyone in heaven will realize that everything they have had its origin in the mind of God and in the heart of God. No wonder in the book of Revelation we see the saints taking the crowns that they receive and placing them back at Jesus' feet. Salvation is always by blood. It says, and almost all things are By law, purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That's what it says in Hebrews 9.22. But I want to draw your attention back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Remember how the chapter began? It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We've been bought with blood. Blood. In the Bible, salvation is always by blood. But not just any blood. It's innocent blood. How much more, the Bible says, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, Was it possible that prior to you coming to Christ, you said something nice, you did something kind, you actually did something decent? But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that everything that you ever did, apart from Christ, not only has little value, it has no value. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin, it says in Matthew 26, 28. Innocent blood, shed blood, applied blood. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, it says in Revelation 1, 5. The first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood salvation is always by blood salvation is always by a person in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 it says but i will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving i will pay what i have vowed salvation is of the lord in acts 4:12 paul says Neither is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Actually, it's Peter. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always by a person. Salvation is always Always, always, always by grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And hopefully by now, the one that you should know by heart. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourself. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always by a person. Salvation is always by grace. And this grace, this grace is always followed without exception by the Savior's peace. Paul writes at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 verse 7, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, This grace, he says, to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace. At the beginning of the chapter, remember when he begins the chapter? In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is always by blood. It's always by a person. It's always by grace. It's always by faith. And then, according to Paul, grace alone never remains alone. Grace alone changes the heart so that you must, of necessity, because of what God has done in your heart and given you grace, you must, of necessity, become gracious. And so he molds you and he shapes you and Paul reveals to the Ephesians that everything that you are and everything that you have and every gift that you've been given, every talent that you've been bestowed, everything that makes you uniquely you is so that you can express your love for, commitment to, belief in, trust in Christ. Christ. Salvation, always by blood, always by a person, always by grace, always followed by peace. We're going to have communion, and what I want you to do is just take a moment and reflect on that, and then we're going to partake together. So. As Lindsay makes her way back up, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, on this rarefied mountain, and we see grace, an ocean of grace that goes beyond our sight and every sight, and then we look and we see faith. <laughs> Lord, we are reminded what Spurgeon said so long ago, that this garment called salvation does not have a single stitch that we placed in it. And so, Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I pray for that person who finds himself or herself in a place of darkness or emptiness. Lord, I pray for the person who is so severely, severely disappointed in what he or she has done. Lord, I pray that you would fill their hearts with comfort and joy knowing that they're saved by grace through faith and that not of themselves. That there's nothing that they can do or have failed to do That will take them away from your love. That will take them away from your mercy. That will take them away from your grace. Because blood has been shed by the person of Jesus. And that this gift of salvation has been given generously, unconditionally by grace through faith that we can with the simple act of appropriation whisper the words I believe and that you count it as righteousness and so Lord again we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus that it's his blood that has purchased our redemption. It's His sacrifice that's made reconciliation. It's His death that provides complete satisfaction for all the crimes that we've committed against you. And so, in taking this cup and drinking, its content. By taking this bread, we once again declare our love and our loyalty to you as we acknowledge that it's the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. In Jesus' name, amen.